Внимание! Говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. Алексей Навальный, it appears, has just been canceled by Amnesty International. The venerable human rights organization this week moved to strip the Russian opposition leader and anti-corruption campaigner of his prisoner of conscious status over nationalist and xenophobic remarks he has made in the past. And the move appears to have come following a campaign by Kremlin surrogates and RT journalists. So what does this mean for Navalny and the Russian opposition? And what does it say about Vladimir Putin's authoritarian regime's ability to manipulate Western institutions? Hello from my makeshift studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington's hip DuPont Circle neighborhood just down the street from me is Ilya Zaslavsky, a senior fellow at the Free Russia Foundation. Welcome back, Ilya. Hi, Brian. Good to be here. Good to have you. And also joining us from Brooklyn, New York, is journalist and longtime Russia watcher Casey Michelle, author of the forthcoming book, American Kleptocracy. Welcome to The Vertical, Casey. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be here. Great to have you. I pronounced your last name properly, I, I, I certainly hope. You did, and hey, you know, if, if you mispronounce it, I've been called a lot worse in my time, so no worries on that front. <laughs> so, quite frankly, you know, the developments this week kind of threw me for a loop. Many of us, in fact, all of us have been following Navalny's career for a while, and we all know he is nationalist and even nativist views that border on racist. In the past, earlier in his life, um, and quite frankly, most of us found them abhorrent. And this has always been something that has kind of bothered us about Navalny. And we also know that as his stature has risen and as his profile has risen, he has toned down this nationalist aspect of his brand, if you will. I don't know why he's done this, if this represents that the views he expressed when he was younger was youthful indiscretion, or if it's just, you know, he's come to the conclusion that it's better branding to keep these views quiet. He does continue to have very conservative views on immigration. But what we do know is that Navalny's a, you know, he's a complicated figure. His nationalist views are not a secret. And it's a little weird for Amnesty to suddenly shocked that Navalny expressed nationalist views in, in, in the past. I mean, he's a complicated figure. He's a complicated man. Now, we also know that the Kremlin has been amplifying Navalny's nationalist past to discredit him in the West. And Amnesty's move this week, and we know this thanks to some really great internet sleuthing by both our good friends Medusa and our good friend Natalia Antonova, who had a very good uh, blog post on this week. We know this came out after a concerted campaign by RT journalists. We know there was a campaign by an RT columnist called Katya Kazbek. That's a pen name. Her real name is Ekaterina Dubovitskaya. We know that the story of this was first broken in a left publication called The Gray Zone, which also supports violent dictators like Bashar al-Assad. 
And I, what I wanted to kind of throw out there, just like, Ilya, what do you make of this? Does this mean that RT now has a veto on who Amnesty can decide as a prisoner of conscience? I think, uh, Brian, this whole story is a disgrace. Really, I'm not a 100% fan of Navalny myself. I mean, I have questions about his attitude to the uh, Crimea's annexation, but this is all irrelevant. And uh, he is really the main leader of Russian opposition. And the way Russian state did all these things to him is just sort of in-your-face, blatant disregard to human rights, like show-off of disregard of human rights. And the timing and the style in which Amnesty did this thing is just, I think it, it will hit them. It's, it's actually, it is not helpful for Navalny and uh, it sort of uh, unties hands of, uh, even more for the Russian state. But I think it will actually have repercussions for Amnesty's reputation um, and it hit more uh, them than Navalny. Uh, I, you know, I asked around and l- looked what my friends and colleagues are writing about this. And, you know, some of them are prominent dissidents like Alexander Podrabinik and some others wrote correctly. Um, Amnesty had no problem giving this status to, uh, like, for example, uh, Eduard Limonov. Eduard Limonov, ex- exactly, exactly. Yeah. So Limonov and Adaltsov, they openly advocated for violence. And, you know, they uh, supported a really... No, it wasn't just hate speech. They they really advocated horrible things, uh, and it was okay for Amnesty to give them status. Uh, I also, you know, looked at what uh, Andrei Sanikov, a prominent uh, Belarusian dissident, wrote about them. He's a good friend, and he he was absolutely dismayed and, at how Amnesty dealt with problems in Belarus previously. And he wrote that, uh, you know, he had very difficult time negotiating things on status with them. And it's always like a, a snobbish approach from them. And it's very difficult to, especially with the headquarters. He's, he's yeah. saying the people um, on the ground in local branches, they are good. But some of the decision makers at the, at the top are just very unapproachable and, and snobbish. And I, uh, I actually personally experienced when I tried to uh, attract attention to my uh, fabricated case, I won't, it was highly politicized when I was fabricated as a spy. I actually got, you know, when I moved to the West and tried to add people, add officials from my case to Magnitsky list, I, I mm-hmm. you know, was trying to find ways to uh, have international organizations like Amnesty help me. And in the end, I did find some help from other organizations. But with Amnesty, I got some very high level contacts. But I have to say, um, as well, they were very snobbish. They didn't look at details. And they just, you know, footballed you to journalists or dismissed your claims. And I think there is a lot of things that Amnesty uh, needs to do internally to really overcome this. Yeah, no, it's, debacle. it's they're taking a PR hit. I mean, can you imagine if this standard was applied to, for example, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, you know, who, quite frankly, you know, expressed some nationalist views that aren't all that different from the ones Navalny expresses. And you're right. I mean, they're, the embassy's taking a hit right now. I mean, longtime Russia watcher Mark Galliotti, uh, my, my friend and the former co-host of this podcast, tweeted, it's shocking and shameful. Navalny is deemed no longer to be a prisoner of conscience because his views are now deemed hate speech. I forgot that only woke pacifists can experience persecution. Um, as Mark, you know, Mark uh, certainly has a way with words. I'm sure we all saw the 
the the Russian spoof the the spoof video that was a a Zoom call to Amnesty in which they admitted themselves that this this has not been handled very very well. Casey, you've done extensive research into the Kremlin's efforts to undermine Western civic institutions, um, and and this is just this isn't just a Kremlin hit on Navalny. This is a Kremlin hit on Amnesty. Um, which is really suffering. Uh, We're going to go deeper into your broader research in the second half, but what are your thoughts on the whole Navalny thing? Yeah, Brian, I mean, to back up everything that Ilya was just saying, I mean, Ilya's assessment is exactly correct. You know, none of us are here to defend Navalny's prior comments. None of us are here to say that what he did shouldn't be criticized and he he shouldn't have to make amends, uh, you know, moving forward for his previous comments. But all of this, every bit of this is redounding, not on Navalny, but on amnesty itself. Everything we've learned just over the past few days makes it seem like Amnesty, which is obviously an incredibly renowned and historic organization, you know, any designation that they put forth of a prisoner of conscience is something that reverberates around the world, not just domestically in Russia, but around the world. And so when they applied that label to Navalny, that was absolutely a moment to celebrate. But to see their behavior, to see their actions, to see, frankly, how gullible they have been over the past few days It just makes it seem like they have something of a clown show that they're running over there. I mean, this is just embarrassment after embarrassment, not just the fact that they appear to have fallen prey to this very concerted disinformation, a coordinated campaign against Navalny. But as you just mentioned, being willing to fall for this clear spoof in just the last few days. I mean, I think Leonid Volkov, you know, Navalny's close ally, summed it up. Just the other day, you know, this was he was he was the gentleman that uh, Amnesty was supposed to be speaking with. Instead, they ended up speaking with the spoof artist. He said, you know, look, Amnesty is just forfeiting their leadership on this. This is what we've seen in the last 48, 72 hours. How can they be trusted moving forward? I mean, the reputational damage to Amnesty, again, it doesn't remain domestic in Russia. It doesn't mean particular just to Navalny himself. But this is, you know, it it is a worldwide round of reverberations that is only going to damage Amnesty's reputation, which is that much more Dispiriting, knowing full well who was behind this campaign, which I'm sure we'll talk about in more detail here shortly. Yeah, this is what I want to stick with that because, I mean, this isn't just – I mean, the Russians are clearly trying to marginalize silence and get Navalny canceled, right? So we'll all forget about him and, you know, we'll stop doing podcasts about him and the Western news media will stop covering him. The New York Times will stop writing about him and and then we'll all just forget about him. But they're also – And I see a kind of deeper campaign here because, Casey, you hit on it and Ilya, you hit on it. And, you know, Mark Kelly's tweet certainly gets at this, but it's certainly in the Kremlin's interest to discredit amnesty. And so they basically got two for the price of one here, didn't they, Ilya? Exactly. Absolutely. And uh, it's just uh, the the word gullible that Casey used is uh, the most relevant one here. Before you take such a serious decision, like ask around, ask, uh, you know, uh, speak not. I mean, if you have doubt in uh, people around Navalny, then, well, ask uh, prominent Russian dissidents. Uh, no, they. it seems like they really took this decision without much uh, decision making. That's, that, that's the problem with, with, with it. And, and this is this is this is concerning because I mean I I care about amnesty. Amnesty is important, you know. <laughs> um, and I don't want to see amnesty discredited. And that's what the damage to to amnesty is as great right now as the damage to to Navalny's reputation. Because quite frankly, we all know Navalny's past. We've all seen the videos of him. You know, uh, I, I don't even want to go go into them. Some of them are extremely disgusting. 
the the things he did in his his younger days when he you know was comparing people from the Caucasus to cockroaches and in, in, in uh, posing as a dentist and, and comparing them to cavities that had to be extracted. I mean, they're kind of childish and sophomoric and and, and deeply offensive. But what he's done since then. I think has been very valuable to the Russian body politic. I always wanted to see him kind of renounce that past and say, I was young and foolish. And, you know, now I now, And he can continue to have conservative views about immigration without being xenophobic and nativist at the same time. But he continues to get defensive when interviewers bring this up. I I can't help but recall an interview Ksenia Subchek did with him back when he was running for mayor of Moscow, where she tried to confront him on his nationalism, and he wouldn't – he got very defensive about it. I think it would really be a good move for him to do right now if he can get a statement out. Now, today he's being moved – from the remand prison in Moscow to where he's going to be serving his full sentence. But as soon as he's able to get some kind of a statement out, whether it's through his lawyers or through his wife, it would be good to get something out about this. I don't know if he'll do it. Ilya, what do you, what do you think? I don't know if he will do it. He's a, he's a very stubborn person himself. Uh, But I think these are two separate issues. Will he do it or not? And how should amnesty have behaved? Yes. Uh, as, uh, as far as his nationalism is concerned, there is a great article, which I highly recommend, by Marsha Gesson mm. uh, at New Yorker magazine. It's the New Yorker she, magazine, yep. Yes. She's also a skeptic of, you know, mm. she was not happy with Navalny's nationalism and his statements, and she has been following him for a while. But you can get a sense that she sort of, she doesn't absolve him of nationalism, but she at least comes to some understanding, to at least some part of it, where it, where it was coming from. and also how exactly how much differently he, he started to behave. I think it's, I agree with you, it's, he corrected his statements, his prior statements, if he really said that he changed and uh, his opinions. But everything that he did, a lot of things that he did, they really show a big change in him, even without his words. And you know, for me personally, this is like a gray, a gray zone, a, a debatable issue. I think it's something, you know, a, how politicians absolve themselves of prior mistakes in like their younger years. Yeah. The correct way to really make a clear cut statement about this, right? But is that the only way? I don't know. I, I probably is, but still, I think it's a deep, uh, and that's what Marsha Gessen does in her essay. But again, to return to amnesty, it's almost irrelevant. Absolutely. The timing, the, it's, it's so mean. It's, it's so disgraceful they really helping Russian state and they are contradicting their own self-made rules. You know, again, I want to reiterate, they have given this status to much worse characters. Yeah. And at the time they didn't, you know, it wasn't such a worry to them. So basically they are not following their own rules and they are a disgrace right now. Yeah, no. And another thing that's going on is that they're changing the meta conversation. Suddenly we're not talking about how Navalny was poisoned with Novichok. You know, suddenly we're not talking about how brave he was to return to Russia knowing full well exactly what was going to happen to him when he got off that airplane. Uh, Suddenly we're not talking about how Vladimir Putin has death squads that are, you know, wandering the world, knocking off 
their enemies. And, you know, this, uh, our, our good friend, Vladimir Karamorza, a good friend of this podcast and a good friend of all of us personally, you know, Bellingcat came out with a fantastic report actually outlining and naming the exact, you know, assassins that went after him. Suddenly we're not talking about all that stuff anymore. Suddenly now we're talking about Navalny's nationalism. Casey, what, what do you think? Look, Brian, I mean, this is the most, maybe for me, the most embarrassing or disappointing, you know, what, whichever term you like to use, element of, of amnesties, you know, waffling and decision-making through this entire period is that these comments from Navalny, you know, as disgusting and abhorrent as they are, uh, as they were and as they continue to be, you know, this didn't take place a month ago. These weren't things he said just two weeks ago. We have known about these comments for a decade, 12, 15 years yeah. at this point. You know, Amnesty's decision last month when Navalny returned to Russia to declare him a prisoner of conscience, they were fully aware, or they certainly should have been. I hope that these comments <laughs> were made in the past. I mean, again, these are relatively well-known comments for anybody who's followed the arc of Navalny's career or domestic politics in Russia over the past few years. The fact of the matter remains that either they were aware of these comments and still went forward with the designation and then pulled back or they didn't know about them and only recently learned about them because of a very coordinated campaign to rescind this designation from Navalny. Again, this gets to your earlier point about this kind of twofer element of this disinformation or, or, or coordinated campaign against Navalny. On the one hand, they are resurfacing these comments yet again for yet another news cycle, for yet uh, another round of us to pay attention to that, rather than the incredible bravery that Navalny displayed, just I mean, right. continues to display, frankly. But then the damage that it does to a group like Amnesty as well. I mean, yeah. it, it is just, a, you know, it is not just the one prong, it is a multi-prong victory for these elements uh, and for this disinformation you know, and if if the Kremlin is and because the Kremlin's been pushing this whole narrative that he's a nationalist for a while now, which is deeply cynical and hypocritical because the Kremlin has been manipulating nationalists and using them for their own purposes for the entire length of the Putin presidency and quite frankly, before that. And, you know, Navalny's not in prison for his nationalism. Navalny's in prison on trumped up corruption charges because he's been exposing the corruption of the Kremlin. He's, uh, which basically meets, uh, it appears to me to meet the definition of a prisoner of conscience. If the Kremlin was so concerned about Navalny's nationalism, Russia does have, you know, incitement to racial violence laws on the books. Why didn't they prosecute him for that? So, I mean, it's, it, there's, the, there's enough hypocrisy to go around here. What do you want to jump back in, Casey? Well, I was going to say, you know, we, we mentioned earlier, you know, this 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 rubric or these, uh, you know, uh, a potential precedent that uh, Amnesty has or doesn't have. You know, Brian, you mentioned Solzhenitsyn. You mentioned Limonov. Uh, you know, Solzhenitsyn was calling for northern Kazakhstan to be returned to Russia proper. Right. Limonov went to jail for trying to lead a secessionist violent right. uprising in northern Kazakhstan. None of those elements, none of those actions, none of those calls uh, or anything that Navalny's done is anywhere near what we saw from the Solzhenitsyn or the Limonovs. Yeah. You know, this just gets back to this poor decision-making, poor, unthought-through element of Amnesty's decision. Yet another disappointment. I mean, Jay, by way to segue into what we're going to talk about in the second half and we broaden it out, I mean, how vulnerable are Western institutions to this kind of manipulation? I mean, I'd like to get kind of both of your thoughts and then that'll be a, a good segue because that's what we're going to go in. We're going to do a deep dive on that with your report in the second half, Casey. But just what does this show us? I mean, it's showing me that venerable Western institutions like Amnesty are more vulnerable 
than I had even suspected. And I'm seeing things, I mean, I see examples all the time. I, I won't mention any names here, but a, a friend of mine, a Russian citizen, asked a very critical question of a Russian official who was here in Washington. And then suddenly the university where this person worked reprimanded her for that after calls from, from Russian officials. And you have to wonder how, you know, again, this is like the dark side of globalization, right? I can't help but remember the incident with the NBA, where the uh, I believe it was the owner of the Houston Rockets uh, got in trouble for tweets supporting the protesters in Taiwan because the Chinese took issue with this with the NBA. And my, my question was, since when does the Chinese Communist Party get to tell NBA owners what they can and cannot say in the United States? Like what's happening? So this is just the latest example of a lot of these things that are that I'm finding deeply troublesome. Yeah. Anyway, your thoughts, Casey, your thoughts, Ellie. Yeah, just uh, two quick responses. One, perhaps this is me and my naivete speaking, but I would have thought that after four, five, six, seven years of continuous coverage, certainly in Western media, of these kinds of malign influence and disinformation campaigns that esteemed Western institutions, be they universities or civil society groups like Amnesty, would have a better ear for something like this, especially for a figure like Navalny. But then to, to your second point pertaining to this kind of playbook of global disinformation, global censorship, global pressure and exploitation of pressure points, whether it's the Chinese Communist Party and the NBA or even Hollywood or what the Saudis have been able to do in California or in places uh, you know, in Canada as well. Uh, certainly what the Russians have been able to do time and again, as we've seen just this week with amnesty. I mean, it is a playbook that is wide open to any authoritarian, autocratic, kleptocratic regime or oligarchic network that they would want. Navalny is the latest victim. He will not be the last. No, he, he certainly will not. Ilya, your thoughts? Uh, my thoughts are that after Cold War, we no longer have black and white picture. And we in the West, the institutions, the NGOs, the, the newspapers, they're still adopting and badly to this change. They, they still cannot comprehend the whole complexity of a new hybrid war coming from uh, yes. post-Soviet space. They like, um, And it actually comes to most basic things uh, lacking, not some sophisticated. So very simple, almost all Western uh, newspapers, even big ones, they don't have a proper Russian translator full time. They don't have journalists dedicated to topics for more than two, three weeks. They don't have enough country representatives. They, the whole way how, for example, Radio Free Liberty is giving, you know, compromising with uh, authoritarian authorities in post-Soviet space. There, there have been many scandals over the last couple of uh, months and years. And how they are all confronted with very well-funded, uh, very sophisticated uh, network uh, of not just Russia Today and Sputnik, but it's, uh, yeah, it's all much sorts of, uh, yeah, it's all sorts of fake NGOs, so-called gongos, you know, government-sponsored uh, NGOs, all sorts of oligarchs and their friends and affiliates and proxies, all sorts of... Uh, covered enablers and open lobbyists and uh, hired public uh, relations people to uh, useful idiots who, you know, who can be played against each other. And I think with Amnesty, we have a combination of, you know, how some connected, supposedly independent, you know, activists uh, in the left, uh, in the West, how they played this internal bureaucracy uh, within yes. Amnesty, how they, how they really trickled them and only if only, for example, Amnesty had, you know, a policy inside it to, like, before we make such decisions, let's consult with the Russian diaspora and with right. some Russian experts. 
let's get a you know a third opinion. It's so easy. It doesn't cost much. It's, it's uh, so the the problem is not only money, which which it is, but it's also this post Cold War silos kind of mentality. Right. Let's just do our own little thing, you know, in our own through our own protocol, and not you know, this yeah. is, this no longer works. You have in the in this complex hybrid environment, you have to be open-minded and really like ask not just for second opinion, but have. Have it as a routine to ask for multiple opinions before you take some steps. And if they did a little due diligence on, like, for example, Katya Kozbeck, like, you know, I mean, she, if you just look at her social media feeds, she's posting, like, ridiculing and deriding the protesters in Belarus, right? You would see what, you know, you, you have to consider the, the, the source of your information. So, no, this is, a, this is a good segue to move into our second half, because in a few moments, we will continue this part of the discussion, broaden the aperture, and look at how Vladimir Putin's regime has managed to manipulate, distort, and exploit Western democratic and legal institutions more broadly for its distinctly anti-democratic goals. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington. McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington, D.C.'s very hip DuPont Circle neighborhood is Ilya Zaslavsky, a senior fellow at the Free Russia Foundation. And joining me from New York's uber-hip Brooklyn borough is journalist and longtime Russia watcher Casey Michelle, author of the forthcoming book, American Clever. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. So the unfortunate and quite frankly disgraceful situation with Navalny and Amnesty International gives us an opportunity to talk more broadly about a trend that has been bothering me for some time. And that is Russia's cynical manipulation of Western institutions in general and Western institutions' naive acquiescence, unwitting acquiescence in this. Uh, Casey, back last year, you authored a spectacular report for the Free Russia Foundation titled Kill the Messenger that looked at Russian oligarchs undermining the First Amendment in the United States. But the, the report for me was about something much broader. It's about an authoritarian regime undermining the American system of justice and the American legal system. For those of you who have not read the report, and, and shame on them, can you give us your give our listeners the kind of Cliff Notes version of what you found in that report? Sure, Brian. Thank you for the uh, for the kind words. And I should say the report would have been nothing without uh, talented peer reviewers like Ilya before publishing to make it uh, uh, as readable, as legible, and hopefully as impactful as uh, as possible. I mean, Brian, you hit the nail on the head. The, the, the thrust, the primary takeaway of the report, the reason that I wrote the report is because what we have seen over the last four, five, six, seven years, frankly, since uh, Euromaidan and the Crimean annexation in Ukraine in 2013, 2014, 
is a range of tactics, a range of tools that, uh, again, primarily Russian oligarch and oligarchic figures, those who are within the Kremlin's nexus, those who have made their uh, certainly hundreds of millions and often billions because of their close relations with the Kremlin and often act as proxies for the Kremlin, they have turned time and again to expanding their own as well as Moscow's influence, uh, disinformation, and uh, malign, uh, I should say malign influence campaigns here in the West, not by using you know traditional above board or traditional uh, tactics that we saw play out uh, you know throughout things like the, uh, the Cold War or through the 90s and even into the 2000s, but by using and abusing the protections that are inherent to the First Amendment here in the U.S. Now, I'm writing as an American, I'm writing by examining what these figures are doing in an American context. Obviously, the most prominent example of that is what we saw play out in 2016 in the interference uh, efforts surrounding those elections. But it is by no means limited to the 2016 interference elections. So when I say uh, the First Amendment, you know, I'm not talking about just the freedom of speech, although that is one of the primary tools and protections that have been used and abused. But we're talking freedom of speech. We're talking freedom of assembly. We're talking freedom of religion. We're talking freedom to petition, which in modern parlance is the freedom to lobby. That also extends to things like the American legal system and the protections therein as it pertains, again, to petitioning and to speech as well. So what we saw, certainly what I saw as a journalist watching this unfold and unfurl is that you had all of these relatively or at least nominally disparate campaigns on social media with civil society organizations, with lawsuit filings, with lobbying, uh, the hiring of, of related lobbyists or a range of lobbyists, all of which were, again, nominally disparate and nominally tied to different and differentiated oligarchs, but all at the end of the day, pushing toward the same strategic goal, that being the utilization of First Amendment protections to subvert American democracy, to in effect subvert the First Amendment itself. And again, all of it at the behest of or for the furtherance of the Kremlin's strategic goals, whether that's dividing the transatlantic relationship, whether that's casting doubt on American democratic legitimacy or American security, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So this, I mean, this kind of falls under the broader category of lawfare, effectively. Yes. I mean, that's, yes. What, that's what that's what we're looking at. Now, Ilya, as Casey pointed out, you were you were one of the peer reviewers on this report. Uh, what anything you want to add here on this? Yes, Casey did a great job, and I'm so glad it came from an American-born journalist who, you know, has been uh, a genuine voice coming from, you know, within the states. I'm a naturalized American, but I've been observing these trends on suppressing, and that's what I want to add. This report is really about suppressing uh, Western journalism in particular. Mm. So Casey showed how in UK, in US, and this is something I've been watching since at least 2010, how oligarchs, given uh, the endless, sort of the bottomless pockets that they have, how they can in broad daylight, using only legal methods, nothing illegal, how they can uh, completely suppress and self-censor even main big publications and media outlets in the West. So essentially, Casey showed how five select oligarchs just really rolled over uh, multiple publications, how they in different ways, I mean, they didn't succeed all the time, but they did succeed quite a few times. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. There are, to my account, there are at least several dozen oligarchs who are mm-hmm. operating like this. 
and I probably don't know uh, a lot myself. I, I mean, it's every every week is hap- uh, so much is happening that you can write a report every week like this. Uh, and I'm not. Well, if, you, if, you could, if you could find a donor to publish to, to fund it, then we should probably we probably should do so. <laughs> I, I don't need to sleep. I'm happy to write these reports week in week out. That's no problem. <laughs> so yes, I I've been following. I call it part of big expert of corruption and uh, corrosive practices from post mm-hmm. Soviet space to, to the West, and you know they are these oligarchs. They are bringing their own attitudes and practices with journalism in post Soviet space. So they are not learning how to behave, you know, uh, respectfully and responsibly with journalists. Uh, they are actually forcing the journalists to learn how to, you know, how to become post-Soviet journalists themselves. They really use legal intimidation techniques. That's how I would call them. They force media outlets for to uh, self-censor because of the threat of libel issues, but also just the sheer effort and and. Uh, nerves that have to be you know put up to to resist those oligarchs people give give up so it's part of a bigger uh, trend i have calculated that oligarchs really as agents of of the kremlin they have exported around 40 different business and uh, political practices are coming on on about 40 different layers so some of them on state to state level but many are on corporate and individual level and this this is you know including lobbying buying media outlets or intimidating media outlets interfering in uh, different political processes through donations to lobbying bribing but also like getting access co-opting people and then uh, funding and uh, donations uh, supposed philanthropic activity to uh, think tanks universities art and culture institutions so the list goes on and on but uh, it's really uh, something that the West, and this uh, comes back to my t- topic in, in in the first half of the program, the West has not adopted properly after Cold War. Yeah. We are in a big gray zone where we either lack uh, regulations uh, on due diligence and you know proper containment, or we simply uh, don't have them. Uh, so they are either not enforced or they are absent, and we still have to adopt on a massive scale to really counter and stop uh, everything from illegal cash flows from through offshore accounts from oligarchs to their exploitation manipulation of legal processes yeah. inside our countries yeah no this is this is what like what mark Gagliotti calls dark power which i think is just a brilliant formulation russia doesn't have soft power it has dark power and um i mean what i've called in a, in a recent report i just published and the, basically the what Russia's doing and what the West needs to do to counter it, um, I, I consider this the dark side of globalization in a lot of ways. Like We assumed, we got globalization wrong. We assumed globalization was going to be this vehicle to spread liberal ideas. It was, but not only. It's also a vehicle to spread illiberal ideas and illiberal practices. And what we have now is the Kremlin using democracy to undermine democracy and using the rule of law to undermine the rule of law. It's a very interesting jujitsu move. I was wondering in the time we have left, if you could, we could suss out some of the examples that you use in the report, Casey, if you want to kind of suss out some of your favorite examples. Yeah, absolutely, Brian. And I will say just to your point that and to Ilya's broader point that this is an, a phenomenon that you can trace the roots back directly to the end of the Cold War. And one of your your great guests, Paul Massaro, who's a good friend of mine who was on just a few weeks ago talking about American anti-kleptocracy uh, legislation and policy. And he had the great this great quote where, you know, the Cold War was over. It wasn't the West that won. 
It was the gangsters that won. Right. It was those that would inhabit the mafia states that we've seen take root in places like Russia right. or Azerbaijan or Kazakhstan. You know, again, the report itself has a whole range of uh, case studies of oligarchs, of examples that you can look to. But so much of this fits within this broader pattern that you were just talking about, Brian, this dark side of globalization aimed at the phenomenon of or for the purpose of laundering. Now, you can be laundering anything you want. You can have money laundering, relying on Western shell companies, Western lawyers, Western PR operators. You can have things like donation laundering, which, uh, as Ilya knows well, there's a post-Soviet oligarch named Len Blavatnik who has issued hundreds of millions of dollars of donations to American universities, American think tanks, you know, rebranding himself as this quote-unquote philanthropist. Uh, or you could have, as it pertains, again, to the First Amendment issues, information laundering, or as I would say, disinformation laundering, mm -hmm. which I think we really saw come home to roost with the incident with Navalny and Amnesty over the past few weeks. You know, th this is one of the questions that I wanted to, you know, in our remaining time, just, just touch on, you know, we saw what happened with Amnesty. We saw what happened with Navalny. There are still questions exactly about what ended up happening, how Amnesty got to that point. We know there appears to be a coordinated campaign. We know there appear to be a number of uh, employees affiliated with RT. I think there was, you know, as you mentioned, Katya Kozbeck, that wonderful writer from Natalia Antonova at Bellingcat, tracing through who this woman actually is, this wealthy heiress who's also a Stalinist who works at RT. Just a fantastic write-up. I can't recommend it enough. But then you had Margarita Simonyan, who's RT's editor-in-chief, coming right. out and tweeting, look, we succeeded after, quote, a campaign led by our columnist, that's obviously on the Russian side. Of yeah, she, she said the quiet part out loud there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you're kind of pulling back the veil a little bit. But, you know, you had on the American side, you have this group called, you know, you mentioned them earlier, Brian, this group called the Gray Zone Project. That is a nominal media outlet that specializes in carrying water for dictators from Venezuela to Syria, especially to Russia. You know, it's run by a guy who is an RT contributor, a Sputnik contributor, who has attended gala events in RT's honor. And lo and behold, he continues to refuse to disclose who the the site's funders are. They refuse to reveal who exactly is bankrolling this operation that appears, again, to have played a key role, not only in spreading disinformation out of Russia itself, but leading this campaign against Navalny. I mean, Brian, you asked for some case studies for, for my report, and I, I guess I'll just close with this one, which is my maybe my favorite one. I don't know quite how indicative of it, but it, it certainly has a, a personal connection on my end. You know, a few years ago, I was covering, you know, the, the sanctions that were coming out of the U.S. against a range of Russian oligarchs, one of them being Viktor Vexelberg, um, who listeners I'm sure are familiar with, you know, sanctioned for his role in the Kremlin's uh, uh, interference campaigns abroad. You know, Vexelberg had this. He owned a, a company which owned a separate company, which ran an American video game company. And one of the things that, that I was interested in is the role that video games play in the digital economy. But beyond that, the role that they play, the opportunities they provide for money laundering, because you can have any number of in-game digital purchases that transfer money from one account to another, that there's no supervisory authority, there's no regulatory authority, and there's very little literature on this phenomenon itself. Anyways, I wrote the story, and wouldn't you know, and this is, goes into detail in the report, wouldn't you know, I instantly heard from the lawyers for this company saying, how dare you address any relationship between a video game company, a Russian oligarch, and money laundering? We demand a retraction. We demand restitution. If you don't take this down, you'll will be seeing you in court. And, you know, this is a discussion for another time, but obviously there are broader financial pressures and, and personnel issues with American media that, you know, some of which you touched 
touched on. And unfortunately, at the end of the day, uh, the decision was out of my hand. It was in the editor's hand. You know, they decided to pull much of the language that we used regarding money laundering and video games, regarding how post-Soviet oligarchs might be interested in or why they'd be interested in purchasing these American video game companies that specialize in these financial uh, mechanisms that are just so happen to be so great for laundering gobsmacking amounts of money. But again, all the details of that are uh, are in the report. And again, you know, it, just so many different prongs, elements of a broader effort at using and abusing and subverting First Amendment protections uh, that we have only begun, you know, taking stock of. And you know, again, just to the earlier point, the fact that somebody or some group like Amnesty can still fall for this shows just yeah. how much further we have to go, how much more work remains to be done, uh, and how much more we have ahead of us. Well, no, this is and going back to something Ilya said earlier, which I, I wholeheartedly agree with, is that we we really haven't adjusted to the end of the Cold War because I have a hard time seeing things like this working during the Cold War because people were on alert for things like this. I mean, the entire kind of political culture of the country and of the West in general was on alert for operations like this. But also, and I would push this a little farther, and this is something I do want to write up at some point, but, but we, the seeds of our current crisis could be traced back to the moment of victory in the Cold War. Because at that moment of victory, we immediately embraced what became known at the time as the Washington Consensus, which preached effectively deregulation, privatization, gutting of social welfare states. This was the dominant ideology at the time. Reaganism, Thatcherism was dominant at that time. And we made the mistake of thinking that was what won the Cold War. What actually won the Cold War was the whole gamut of Western liberalism, you know, from the left to the right. You need it all. Right. And we kind of turned that what became known as neoliberalism, but this whole Washington consensus that was based on deregulation and, and kind of you know privatization and cutting back social welfare states, we took that as gospel. We not only did it to our own societies, we preached it abroad. And as a result, now we have deregulated everything to the point where there are these gaping holes that malign foreign actors, ironically, the one we defeated in the Cold War at that time, can now drive a truck through. We gutted our social welfare states to the point where there is a large disenfranchised part of our population that is susceptible to malign influence and disinformation. We created a tabloid politics that has polarized us to the point where that can be exploited by malign foreign actors. And we've created a situation through like, you know, very lax beneficial ownership uh, legislation that has allowed corruption to be exported into our systems. Right. It's it's um, I mean, we we've seen the enemy and it is us effectively. And, you know, I mean, I'm not going to excuse the Kremlin for you know, taking advantage of this. But I mean, you know, it's it, it doesn't take you know too many brain cells to rub together to figure out that any smart foreign, you know, hostile foreign power. And Putin is a very smart and very hostile you know, foreign leader is going to is going to try to exploit this. Right? It, it's it's a no brainer. You know, Brian, to your point, you're you're absolutely right. There's almost an element on my end. I don't begrudge them for doing this. We left the door wide open within I that deregulatory you, atmosphere. <laughs> well, sir, no, right, right, right. There is a logic to it. And by no means are the only they're the only ones doing it. They just so happen to be the best ones at it. Right. The ones who've taken fullest advantage 
to then spread these kinds of malign networks uh, around. I mean, in a shameless self-plug, that's exactly what my book is about. Right. Why these industries of financial anonymity, why these pro-kleptocracy or kleptocratic supply side, as I describe them, industries developed and who took advantage of them right. and what damage has that done to the body politic, to national security, to transatlantic and trans-Pacific relations, and to electoral legitimacy. I mean, I think we really dodged a bullet in the last few years here in the U.S. primarily, pertaining to some of the directions this country could have gone in. And by no means are we out of the woods yet. But unless certain policies as it pertains to financial anonymity, beneficial ownership, you know, you name it, are implemented, there's no reason to think we won't continue facing these scandals, these tensions, this increasing polarization for years and years and years to come. And who's going to take full advantage of it? It's the guy who's sitting over in the Kremlin who's perfectly happy to take advantage of these systems as long as he can. No, the big irony of this all is that it's like, instead of the former Soviet space becoming more like a Western democracy, Western democracies are beginning to more resemble these kind of kleptocratic post-Soviet regimes. And that's, we, we dodged some bullets, we're still dodging bullets. We're gonna continue to be dodging bullets for a little while. We're all looking forward to your book, Casey. When it comes out, we'll be sure to do a program on it. Um, I wanna shift over to Ilya for the last word because I am getting notification from the control room gods that we gotta wrap it up soon. So last word goes to you, Ilya. I agree with everything you say, guys. And I think really increasingly we all see that we live in the age where democracy is a, actually a fragile oasis in the middle of a very predatory and uh, hostile you yep. know, desert or semi-desert. And uh, it's not a given thing. It shouldn't be taken for granted. And the solution to the problem starts with actually with acknowledgement of the scale of the problem and that it's an existential issue, really, that we're talking about now, uh, it's not just something happening, you know, in post-Soviet space or somewhere outside our, of our realm. It's happening right here in Washington, D.C., in London, yep. in New York, uh, in Paris. Uh, so uh, this is an existential threat, and it's a fragile uh, liberal democracy versus state cronyism uh, capitalism and, you know, uh, mafia capitalism. You can call it different ways. Uh, and the outcome is not yet decided. So uh, independent journalism and uh, investigations versus other investigative journalism rather than, you know, just opinions or superficial, you know, entertain, mm -hmm. entertainment uh, journalism, that's what matters. And we should uphold it dearly. And civil society organizations like Amnesty should really rethink their role yeah. in, in this hostile environment. Yeah, no, this is, I can't say it enough, this is the normative struggle of our time, this postmodern Cold War that we're in, um, which is going to be the title of a report I'm going to write pretty soon. Um, this postmodern Cold War is this normative struggle. It is the, the, the struggle of our time, just like the Cold War was the struggle for the previous generation. And on that note, I got to wrap it up. That's all we got time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Article Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. My name's Ryan Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from just down the street in D.C.'s 
uber-hip DuPont Circle neighborhood has been Ilya Zaslavsky, a senior fellow at the Free Russia Foundation. And joining us from Planet Hip, that would be Brooklyn, New York, has been journalist and author and longtime Russia watcher Casey Michelle, author of the forthcoming book, American Kleptocracy. Thank you both for an enlightening and lively discussion. This is great. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room, and he keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Cecilia Wynn handles our all-important post-production duties, making me and my guests sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And please leave us a rating and review. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access the, all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team. <laughs>